From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elving on the Week in Politics. And later, Daniel Estrin in the shattered Turkish city of Antakya, where Korean pastor Jakob Chang tells Daniel... Can I say, pray to God, or help us, or be with them and comfort them? Can I do something? No. Just we lean on each other, stick together. We'll take you there this hour. And later, what do you do with old fascist monuments? Sylvia Poggioli reports many Italians ask, what's the problem? Bloomflower, Missouri, in the selfie spotlight. And Priya Gunn's new novel centers around people who drive the gig economy. Your driver is waiting. First, our newscast at Saturday, February 25, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A magnitude 5.3 earthquake struck central Turkey today, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. The death toll in Turkey and Syria from a major earthquake and deadly aftershocks now exceeds 50,000, according to official figures. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports rebuilding efforts are in the very early stages. Turkey's Disaster and Emergency Management Authority said more than 44,200 people were confirmed dead as a result of the quake, while the death toll from Syria was just short of 6,000. Rescue crews are still on the ground, but there have been no reports of survivors being freed in recent days. Even as tons of emergency aid and supplies continue to be flown into the region daily, people left homeless by the quake are still complaining of difficulty getting a tent for their families. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's government, which came under fire for its initial response to the disaster, is pledging some 270,000 new homes will be built within a year. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Adana, Turkey. Millions of Nigerians head to the polls today in one of the biggest elections in the world this year. It's also one of the most unpredictable in Nigeria in recent memory. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwatu reports. Polls have opened and Nigerians are voting for a successor to outgoing President Muhammadu Buhari, who is leaving office after two terms. Close to 90 million people are eligible to vote and elect a new leader following eight difficult years. Nigerians have suffered multiple economic recessions, rising unemployment and poverty, while insecurity has rapidly spread, even preventing polls in parts of the country. Instead of two main candidates vying to replace Buhari, this time there are three, projected to have a realistic chance of winning, and it means there's a possibility of a runoff for the first time. The results of the elections are expected to be announced after a few days. Emmanuel Akinwotu, NPR News, Lagos. Law enforcement officials across the U.S. are asking Jewish communities to remain vigilant this weekend. As NPR's Dave Mistich reports, officials say that far-right hate groups have been attempting to organize anti-Semitic activities as part of a so-called National Day of Hate. Officials say extremist groups posted on social media calling for the vandalization of property and the distribution of anti-Semitic banners, flyers, and stickers. Law enforcement in some major cities say they have not identified any specific threats, but would step up patrols near houses of worship out of an abundance of caution. The Anti-Defamation League says harassment and violence targeting Jewish people hit a record high in 2021. NPR's Dave Mistich, California's winter continues to defy norms with floods, blizzards, and avalanches, along with frigid temperatures. And in Michigan, more than half a million people still without power after an ice storm. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The State Department of Education says the unreliability of the Boston Public School District's transportation service for students with disabilities violates their rights. The Boston Globe obtained the letter sent by the department to school superintendent Mary Skipper. The letter says bus dysfunction between October 2021 and October 2022 denied students the right to safe and timely rides. Some tardy students also missed out on necessary specialized services. The department ordered Boston to submit a plan to address these issues and to hire a person to manage special education transportation. It is 14 degrees in Boston, and as temperatures drop to these kinds of levels, emergencies linked to unvented sources of heat increase. Turning on a gas stove, using a gas-fired lantern, or lighting a fire beneath a clogged chimney can put you at risk for carbon monoxide poisoning. Dr. Powell Graham is a medical toxicologist at the UMass Chan School of Medicine. The true danger of carbon monoxide is that it's completely invisible, it's odorless, it's tasteless, and it doesn't irritate you. So there's really no way to detect it without a carbon monoxide detector. Graham says symptoms may be subtle at first, a headache or fatigue, and progress to chest pain, confusion, and a loss of consciousness. A Cohasset native and Navy SEAL has died from injuries sustained during a parachuting accident in Arizona. 36-year-old Michael T. Ernst was participating in a parachute training exercise at an airfield when he was injured. He died at a Phoenix hospital this past Sunday. The Navy is investigating. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley will be in Los Angeles tonight for the NAACP's Image Awards. The ceremony grants awards to people of color for performances in the arts. Presley is featured in the Hulu documentary The Hair Tales, which has been nominated for an award. The show will be broadcast live on BET. Increasing clouds today in Boston, a slight chance of snow this afternoon. Highs reaching the low 20s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thanks for being with us. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is entering its second year and shows no signs of soon ending. President Biden marked the anniversary with a surprise trip to Kiev. He announced another $2 billion worth of weapons and imposed additional sanctions on the Russian metals and mining sector. Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. The president's trip was uh, risky, bold, apparently planned in secret for months. Let's listen to a bit of what the president said to uh, President Zelensky. Freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. Ron, with a year's perspective, what what do you see as being at, at the root of President Biden's deep commitment to Ukraine? Biden is a product of the Cold War era and everything that meant in American politics and American life. He remembers the days of the Soviet Union, so it does not take much to reawaken his old suspicions and fears about Moscow. Then when he was chairman of Senate Foreign Relations a couple of decades ago, he watched the rise of Putin and the kind of regime that Putin was building. 
And at the same time, Biden's been around long enough to recognize as a politician the kind of issue that can potentially create national consensus, national unity. Mm -hmm. And Ukraine has given him that, a counterweight at the minimum to the problematic withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2001, excuse me, in 2021, that it hurt Biden badly in his first year. At the same time, uh, the Associated Press uh, found support among Americans in the U.S. Uh, to provide weapons to Ukraine has fallen from about 60 percent last May to 48 percent currently. Is that some kind of warning sign for the administration's policy? Potentially so. And it's there in other polls as well. But it's important to note that fall off has been largely accounted for by Republicans. A year ago, most of the Republicans told pollsters that they were all in for Ukraine and that the United States should be doing more for that country. Uh, late, uh, later, some time after that, uh, they began expressing doubts. Uh, polls now find that 40 percent of Republicans think the United States should dial back on its commitments to Ukraine or cut that country off entirely. Uh, support has also fallen off among independents, but not nearly as much. And now we hear some Republican figures saying that there should not be a, quote, blank check, unquote, for Ukraine, or that Ukraine's border with Russia should not be the big focus, that we should be more concerned about the U.S. border with Mexico. Uh, Former President Trump has been maybe a little ambivalent about Ukraine, initially praising Putin's handling of the crisis, Putin's, and sounding alarms about spending U.S. tax dollars, of course, to support NATO or to help a foreign country. And maybe his main rival for the nomination in 2024, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, has also sounded ambivalent about it and used that blank check language and also said that Putin only invaded because Biden was so weak. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott uh, toured Iowa this week, where the first Republican Party caucus will take place in 2024. You know, the February foliage in Ankeny is just beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> so he went there to see the take a look at the leaves. Actually, they're not there in February. But go ahead. Yes. Uh, let's be frank. No senator goes to Iowa in this season unless that senator is prepared to be accused of presidential ambition. And when he was there, well, his speech had a lot in common with that of Nikki Haley, who was also there this month. And both Scott and Haley spoke of new leaders. That was their language in the Republican Party. Interesting side note, uh, Scott first became a senator as an appointee to fill a vacancy, and the Republican governor who appointed him in South Carolina was Nikki Haley. Mm. Now, it's unusual for a state of any size to have two presidential candidates head-to-head in the same party, let alone in a smaller state such as South Carolina. Of course, many will say neither Haley nor Scott is running to be president, but to be vice president. That doesn't mean either or both would not like to be president, just that either would be more than happy to be vice president first. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. After years of criticism, the Food and Drug Administration is getting new tools to hold drug companies accountable when it comes to speedy approval of their medicines. NPR's pharmaceuticals correspondent Sidney Lupkin reports the agency has yet to show how it will put its new leverage to use. The huge spending bill that became law last December also included fixes to a problem that has dogged the FDA for years. Drug makers could get fast approval for certain drugs with preliminary data on the promise that they would do more research after the fact to make sure the drugs worked. But companies were often slow to follow through on these so-called accelerated approvals, leaving patients and doctors uncertain about their medicines. 
Will the FDA now force drug companies to start their studies on time? I asked Robin Feldman, a professor at the University of California College of the Law, San Francisco. This essentially strengthens their hand. However, <laughs> um, just because the FDA has the power doesn't mean it's going to use it. There have been times when the FDA has had powers but neglected to use them. Conversely, the agency has also attempted to put its foot down, gotten sued by drug makers, and lost. She says the new law can come in handy if a drug company tries to push back on an FDA decision. The FDA wouldn't say whether it's doing anything differently on accelerated approvals other than that it's working on a plan to implement the new law. Here's Feldman again. Generally, these are discretionary rather than mandatory. In other words, um, it allows the FDA to do things, but doesn't require the FDA to do things. You know, that's a big difference. We should note that the COVID vaccines were not granted this kind of approval, but accelerated approvals do apply to more than 100 drugs approved to treat cancer, HIV, preterm birth, and more over the last three decades. An NPR investigation last year found that many of the promised confirmatory studies are delayed, sometimes for years. The new law allows the FDA to require companies to start confirmatory studies before it grants accelerated approval, something the agency told me last year it didn't have the authority to do. Here's Dr. Reshma Ramachandran of Yale School of Medicine, who pushed for the fix. We wanted that to be like codified in legislation. So that wouldn't be an exception. That would just be the rule. And I think FDA, you know, also made very clear and they put out a piece in New England Journal of Medicine showing that when that happens, that prevents um, significant delays for starting the trials, but he's also completing the trials. The law may also make it easier for the agency to take drugs off the market if studies find the drug is not effective. Here's Dr. Aaron Kesselheim, a professor of medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. When a drug is given accelerated approval and then that confirmatory study fails, that's really an, an important finding that indicates that that drug does not have the same level of, of effectiveness that we expect of other approved drugs. And there is no reason for that drug to remain on the market at that point. In addition, the law creates new transparency requirements and a council to get everyone at the FDA on the same page about how this kind of approval should be used. Still, Kesselheim says the changes may not be enough. The final language was not as airtight as it could be, you know, so I do think that there is wiggle room. So the rules may need to be tightened again in the future. Sydney Lupkin, NPR News. If some ideas to combat climate change sound too good to be true, they probably are. Whenever you hear the word breakthrough, red flags should start flying. Nuclear fusion, for example, is likely decades away from becoming reality, while carbon capture can end up producing emissions instead of reducing them tomorrow. On Weekend Edition Sunday, some tips to help you determine whether a proposal that's getting buzz as a climate solution is real or a gimmick. You can listen live on your phone or to your public radio station's website or on NPR.org. Flacco has been on the lam, eluding cops and evoking cheers from New Yorkers these past few weeks, and now authorities say he can stay free. Flacco is a Eurasian eagle owl who beat it out of his cage in the Central Park Zoo early this month after vandals cut some of the wire caging around his enclosure. This set off a bird hunt of police officers and park rangers. Zoo officials worried that Flacco, who's been ensconced in his zoo digs for 13 years, may have lost the survival instincts he needs in the wild. They laid out bait to tempt Flacco. They played pumped-up recordings of the hoots of other eagle owls to lure him. 
Not that owls hoot to each other, they don't tweet. Flacco was not fooled. Instead, he was sighted soaring or Fifth Avenue and Central Park skating rink. Scores of New Yorkers, who might be blasé walking by a human celebrity stamped into Central Park to try to catch a glimpse of Flacco snapping photos with the fury of paparazzi. Owls may look like the Henry VIII of avians, but they're accomplished predators who soar, swoop, and scarf up whatever is on offer on the forest floor. Yet in a city famed for streetcart falafel, hot dogs, and doses, no one saw Flacco even snacking. But this week, zoo officials announced they're reconciled to Flacco remaining in Central Park because he's been seen bringing up, I'm trying to be delicate here, bones and fur from the park's abundant community of rats. He has been very successful at hunting and consuming the abundant prey in the park, zoo officials told the New York Post. And that's amazing, David Barrett, who runs the Manhattan Bird Alert Twitter account, told us. He's catching prey on his own. He's flying better. Flacco really seems to be enjoying himself out there. There is a caution attached to this story of an owl who is making it on his own in the city that never sleeps. Owls are nocturnal. They forage at night. They sleep during the day, or try to, like lots of people who work the overnight shift. Some New Yorkers who don't know bird-watching etiquette reportedly see Flacco snooze in a tree during the day and begin to hoot at him. It interrupts his sleep. Flacco can't try to shush them with the traditional New York reply. After all, a bird can't flip someone the bird. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. And coming up in about 10 minutes or so, you'll get the story on the Earl Nelson Singers, an African-American musical group in Michigan that's been singing spirituals since the civil rights era. The group's about to present its final concert. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, ICABoston.org. Join us at City Space Friday, March 17th, for an event featuring Kelly McCovers and Chris Bender of the host and producer of NPR's documentary-style podcast, Embedded. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. Despite appeals from Ukraine, President Biden is not sending advanced American fighter jets there. Biden told ABC News that there's no rationale presently to send them. A magnitude 5.3 earthquake struck central Turkey today, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. The death toll from previous quakes and shocks this month in Turkey and Syria now exceeds 50,000. California is experiencing widespread extreme winter weather with floods, blizzards and avalanches, along with frigid temperatures. Meanwhile, in Michigan, more than a half million people are still without power after a severe ice storm. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Coalition of Democratic State Attorneys General has filed a lawsuit that accuses the FDA of adding unnecessary restrictions for a common abortion pill. It's also likely to pit one federal judge against another. And Pierre Sarah McCammon has been following this. She joins us. Sarah, thanks for being with us. Hi, Scott. And help us understand the, the premise of this legal conflict. This all centers on the abortion drug called mifepristone. And it's important to understand that this drug has been the subject of heated political debate ever since it was first approved back in 2000 by the Food and Drug Administration. Abortion rights opponents fought its approval then, and they're still fighting it now. And even now, there's a separate ongoing case in federal court in Texas, a lawsuit that was brought by abortion rights opponents that could be decided any day. It is in front of a Trump-appointed judge who has the power to block access to this pill nationwide. And now we have another federal lawsuit, this one filed in Washington state by a dozen Democratic state attorneys general who are asking that judge to do just the opposite, Scott, to loosen restrictions on the drug. And what type of restrictions would they like to loosen? Mifepristone, which is used in first trimester abortions, is more heavily regulated than most other prescription drugs. So there are extra layers of FDA rules that are called a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, or RIMS. Those RIMS typically apply to higher risk drugs, things like opioids. Here's Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson, who is co-leading this suit. And those are very, very high risk, like fentanyl, for example. So really what we're asking the court to do is remove those restrictions and make access to this important medication more available to women across the country. And for years, major medical groups like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have wanted these extra rules on mifepristone removed. They've faced fierce resistance from anti-abortion groups on that. Now, the FDA under President Biden has loosened some of those rules, allowing mifepristone to be mailed, for example, and opening the door for retail pharmacies to eventually carry it. But there are some extra rules in place, things like special certification processes for prescribers above and beyond typical prescription drugs. And these attorneys general also want the judge to block the FDA from taking the drug off the market. Sarah, what has the response been so far from groups opposed to abortion who've been uh, fighting to block access to this drug? Well, I reached out to the Alliance Defending Freedom. That's the anti-abortion legal group leading the Mifepristone Challenge in Texas. In a statement, their senior counsel, Eric Baptist, noted that a group of Democratic attorneys general filed a brief in that case supporting the FDA's approval of the drug. And he said he finds it, quote, highly ironic that some of the same attorneys general are now questioning the FDA's regulations when it comes to the rims that they want removed. I also reached out to the FDA about this latest lawsuit, and they said they don't comment on pending litigation. So two federal cases asking two federal judges to move in opposite directions. How does that get resolved? Right. It does set up an interesting conflict. That conflict could eventually end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. NPR National Correspondent Sarah McCammon. Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you.
The Turkish city of Antakya, known in ancient times as Antioch, has been at the crossroads of civilizations for centuries and a modern destination for tourism, but it was devastated by this month's earthquake. NPR's Daniel Estrin went to see what's left of the town, finding devastation but also perseverance, and this caution, his report contains some disturbing descriptions. We begin by walking down the main street of Antakya's historical center to learn about its distant past. Our tour guide says this road used to be an ancient Roman road from 2,000 years ago. He says it was the first lit road in the world where there were candles on columns. And now it's a complete disaster. And there are aid trucks going through the road. We have rubble and stones everywhere. There are soldiers here. On the left, you will see the synagogue of Jews, Jewish people. Our guide, Yusuf Kujolu, loved to show tourists around his ancient city. But after the earthquake, he's living in a tent. We've hired him to give us the tour he never wanted to give, touring a city of ghosts. This is the first place in Anatolia where Jewish people immigrated. And this is one of the oldest uh, praying place for them. The synagogue is still standing, but after the earthquake, its ancient Torah scroll has been taken out of the city for safekeeping. The city's Jewish community stretches back more than 2,000 years. Recently, only about a dozen remained. And after the earthquake, they all left. The Jewish community's leader, Saul Janudiolu, was killed in the earthquake. He was really hospitable. He likes helping people. He used to like helping people. So if we were here before the earthquake and we would knock on the doors yeah, of the synagogue, he would, he would be his, the one Yeah, here. he would, yeah. Uh, let's go to the city center now and uh, take a walk there too. We reach the facade of the historic Orthodox Church, now a heap of wires and stones. This was uh, one of the most important church in Christian history. Ancient Antioch was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. Tradition says the Apostle Peter brought Christianity to the city in 47 AD. The New Testament says Christians were first called Christian here. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, sir. A Protestant church has also collapsed. We meet Korean pastor Jakub Cheng, where he just held Sunday worship services outside the ruins. One of his congregants is still missing after the earthquake. It's very hard. They lean on God, but it, in this situation, how can I say? Can I say, pray to God or help us or just be together, be with them and comfort them? Can I do something? No, just we lean on each other, stick together. This is what I should do. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for talking to us. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to me. So, uh, let's go another point, would you? We visit a historic mosque with a long history, a Biba Najjar. This is uh, the main entrance of the uh, mosque. The minaret uh, used to be here, but it's now collapsed. There used to be a dome here, as far as I see, it's also collapsed. Like all the old religious sites damaged, it's draped in a black sign warning people not to enter. Let's wait in a safe place. In fact, there's no place safe here. According to tradition, the mosque is named after an early convert to Christianity. Habibi Najjar used to be a man from the Roman period when Petrus and his... Uh, Peter. 
when Peter came here with his friends, he uh, met them. Our guide is Alawite Muslim, part of the city's kaleidoscope of religions, ethnicities, and languages that makes Antakya unique. Or at least it was that way before the earthquake. Now, not a soul lives in the central part of the city anymore. Bodies are still rotting under the debris. All the survivors have escaped. We arrive at a heap of rubble that used to be one of our guide's favorite streets, filled with shops and bars. The street was lovely, crowded, and lots of flowers on your right and left. He turns away. This is the first time that you yeah. cried on our tour. Uh, what, what about that uh, made you emotional? I had lots of good memories here. That's why it, I'm sorry. <laughs> Just I didn't want to look and uh, see them in, as destroyed. This is the heart of Antakya. We had lots of memories here with my friends with my uh, guests from different countries. I remember them, that's why. We hike hills of wreckage and find one of his haunts, the Pasha restaurant, sliced down the middle. The owner, Orhan Uyanak, is salvaging beer from the ruins and gives our guide a bottle. He says a couple got engaged here recently. I don't even know if they survived the earthquake. Then he plays us a video on his phone. It's a recent performance of Antakya's beloved Choir of Civilizations, singers of different faiths and ethnicities. Who knows how many of them survived the quake? Even if people say Antakya is over, Antakya is collapsed totally, I don't uh, think so. Despite the sadness, our guide Yusuf Kujolu and every person we meet along the way vows that they will rebuild the city's historic sites, which have fallen and were rebuilt after earthquakes in the past. This place of many names, Antakya, Antioch, Hatay, has resurrected itself over and over throughout the centuries. Hatay uh, was ruined by the earthquakes uh, six or seven times. Maybe this is the eighth. It doesn't matter. We are here. Uh, we will uh, try to do something for our city again and again. Maybe it will take long time. It doesn't matter for us. That history offers him some comfort, despite the cataclysmic loss all around us. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Antakya, Turkey. That story was produced by NPR's Samantha Balaban. The choir in Michigan's been keeping the tradition of African-American spirituals alive for 60 years. Now its aging members are preparing for their final concert. Sophia Salaby of member station WKAR reports. Spirituals like Good News, the Chariots Are Coming have been a part of the Earl Nelson Singer's repertoire for decades. Their founder, Earl Nelson, started organizing the choir in the early 60s in Lansing, 
Ruby Frazier was an early member. She says Nelson wanted to honor songs created by enslaved Africans. He could hear the spiritual being changed into like dancing music and I think that was his initial desire was to bring it back to its original intent. I found the spirituals to be so sad in some ways and joyful in some ways. Marianne Larzelier joined a few years later. She says as a white woman, she didn't grow up knowing spirituals, but the group was always open to everyone. And of course, this was right about in the middle of the civil rights movement. And I thought, this is something I'm going to do. Nelson led the group up until the late 1970s. The current director, Verna Holly, took over for Nelson after that. The spirituals still address the troubles of the world. And so we feel that we are like messengers as we sing the songs in our repertoire. The choir now has about 25 members, ranging in age from 40 all the way to 90. Frazier, who's sung with the group for 59 years, says singing spirituals is a family tradition. I had a six-month-old child in my arms, my son, when I joined the group. He is now one of the tenors. And even if they aren't all related, the group has become close-knit, and that togetherness is revolutionary because we sing so much in harmony, all colors, all cultures, together. Lars Lear and Melvin Holly will tell you the group has been a constant in their lives, including their weekly practices. Every Monday. Every Monday night for the last 57 years of my life. <laughs> but that routine was interrupted by the pandemic, and the group is smaller now. Some of the members died during that time. When they came back together late last year, Choir director Verna Holly says they made the difficult decision to give one final performance. After you get to be a certain age, it's apparent that you must lay down some things that you have always done. <laughs> the group's final song, called That's Enough, will feature Melvin Holly, a bass. Lars Lear says it's a powerful way to end their last concert. It will be a sad time when he stands up and sings that song, but also a joyful time that we've been together. The singers say they're hoping a younger member may decide to bring back the group in the future, but for now they plan to get together a few times a year just to sing. For NPR News, I'm Sophia Salaby in East Lansing. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The largest Roman Catholic parish in the nation is now in California's Central Valley. The recently opened St. Charles Borromeo congregation serves tens of thousands of worshipers each week. Church leaders say the size of the parish is caused in part by a shortage of priests. From Valley Public Radio, Esther Quintanilla reports from Visalia. before Mass, a line of parishioners waits to get inside. Charles Blue says being early is normal for his family. Always early to church. <laughs> That's just it's my true. belief. I always want to be early to church. Yeah, I don't want to be way in the back. His wife, Carrie Blue, can't wait to go inside. I'm kind of wanting that feeling of walking in and saying, this is home. This is where we were meant to be. 
On the first Sunday St. Charles Borromeo opened, thousands filed in. A beam of sunlight shone through the skylight above the altar. A mural depicting saints floating in the cosmos looked down at the pews where the blues took their seat. In the days leading up to the inaugural service, Father Alex Chavez was thrilled to show off the building. You see the dome, what you see up in the clouds, that's taken from the Hubble telescope. Chavez says each piece of art in the sanctuary is meaningful. The centerpiece, the Trinity, carved out of wood, sent to us from Spain. The Diocese of Fresno stretches across 200 miles of the largely agricultural San Joaquin Valley. The painting behind the pulpit depicts rows of tomatoes, peppers, and other vegetables grown in the region. You see the mural, you see the valley, field crop, the valley oak tree that we're known for, the California poppy, you see little patches, the valley, the Sierras. That's us. That's our story. St. Charles Borromeo cost $21 million to build and seats more than 3,000 people. Our numbers are growing, the numbers of Catholics in this area. That's Bishop Joseph Brennan, the head of the diocese, which has more than a million registered members. The other side of that coin is the diminishing numbers of priests. He says St. Charles was envisioned to combat that issue. This is an attempt on that practical level to create a place where we could have a number of services without really diminishing the, <laughs> the, the health and well-being of our priests. Researchers at Georgetown University have found the number of Catholic priests in the U.S. has dropped by more than half over the last five decades. That means individual parishes need to be larger. Here in Fresno, there are 169 priests serving 137 congregations. Mark Gray is with the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate at Georgetown. He says the shortage is caused by various factors, including multiple years of schooling, the requirement of celibacy, and communities not talking about priesthood as an option. There's not a lot of encouragement anymore. Fewer tend to choose that path in life. Gray says that mega-congregations, like St. Charles, relieve stress on smaller parishes in the area. Bishop Brennan says those were overcrowded. This is literally centrally located for the Diocese of Fresno, and pretty much uh, centrally located for the state of California. But specifically, and, and maybe in a sense selfishly for the Diocese of Fresno, it's a perfect location to draw people from every corner of the diocese. St. Charles Borromeo expects to serve 14,000 families each week with just three full-time priests. Despite that ratio, Brennan says the pastors there will be able to care for their flock. For NPR News, I'm Hester Quintanilla in Visalia. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. For the first time, the MBTA has publicly released data on its slow zones. The new information shows the T has 70 slow zones across the system, covering nearly nine miles of track. Slow zones are areas where trains and trolleys must reduce their speed, often because of track issues. The Orange Line has the largest portion of its track restricted at more than 13 percent. Brookline police say they're stepping up patrols today in response to a national Day of Hate campaign run by an anti-Semitic group based in Iowa. Police say they will increase their presence near local religious institutions, especially synagogues. The Anti-Defamation League says it is not aware of any specific threats, but is monitoring the situation closely. 
It is 14 degrees in Boston, but you will find a traditional harbinger of spring in South Boston. This is opening day for Sullivan's on Castle Island. The restaurant started as a family business in 1951 and has stayed a regional favorite ever since. Increasing clouds today, a slight chance of some snow this afternoon, and highs today reaching the low 20s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. It was just this really awkward moment for me where I felt like I was lagging behind a little bit. And then Dan Santat snuck into Wimbledon. How a trip abroad changed everything for one awkward kid. And should parents today loosen the reins? That and all the latest news Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox. Committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams, quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Germany underwent denazification after World War II. Not so Italy. It is still filled with buildings and street names that evoke its 20-year dictatorship under Benito Mussolini. A century after fascists took power, NPR's Silvia Poggioli reports a new website maps monuments and plaques that commemorate his regime. Cinema Troisi is an art movie house in central Rome. Its white, minimalist facade contrasts with the ornate 19th-century buildings nearby. It was built in 1933 as the headquarters of the fascist youth organization. But there's no plaque explaining its link to the dictatorship. Young people milling around the lobby cafe seem indifferent to the building's fascist origins, including 20-year-old Christian Carrere, who works here. It's evolution. A building is born as a structure, but inside its purpose can change. For example, first it's a butcher shop, and two years later it becomes a discotheque. Across town, a fascist-era sports center has become a skateboarder's paradise. Young men swoosh and twirl on log slabs of marble and mosaic pavement that glorify the fascist regime, such as Mussolini's slogan, many enemies, much honor, and large M's for his name. Looming over the mosaics is a 57-foot-tall obelisk. Built in 1932 to mark the regime's 10th anniversary, the inscription is Mussolini Dux, Latin for leader. I think it's really tacky. Tacky. <laughs> yes, yeah, so kitsch, no yeah. cheesy. Yeah. Nelly Porco, who's been training for a marathon in the sports center nearby, is annoyed more by the obelisk's design than its historical meaning. 
In fact, most Italians ignore the history of the obelisk, the mosaics, and the bigger-than-life male nude statues encircling the sports center, says historian Lucia Ceci. It's as if they've become part of the landscape. While they are very shocking, and rightly so, for foreigners, tourists, journalists, and diplomats. Ceci is one of the coordinators of a new website that maps Italy's monuments, plaques, and street names commemorating fascism. Started seven years ago, the project is backed by the Ferruccio Pari Research Institute in Milan, named after an anti-fascist partisan. The project was inspired by debates in other countries, including the U.S., over how to treat monuments glorifying colonialism and slave owners. Ceci and her fellow researchers do not call for the destruction of fascist-era monuments, but want to add explanatory plaques that contextualize their origins. Otherwise, the message continues to be that fascism brought modernity to the city, hiding the dictatorship, the persecutions, the discriminations, and the war. In 1935, before a crowd of thousands, Mussolini announced the invasion of Ethiopia and heralded Italians as a nation of... Heroes, saints, poets, artists, navigators, colonizers, and travelers. Nearly 90 years later, those words remain inscribed on a building halfway between Rome and the sea. At the top of a long flight of steps stands what was once known as the Palace of Italian Civilization. It was built to celebrate Italy's conquest of Ethiopia, says historian of fascism Marla Stone. It's very much a celebration of war, conquest and empire, and the idea that fascism was going to expand and spread its message of nationalism, of strength, of masculinity. It's a very heavy masculine building. With 416 arches and statues celebrating concepts such as heroism, philosophy, and political genius, today it's known as the Square Coliseum. And since 2015, it's been global headquarters of the Fendi Fashion House. Historian Marla Stone laments that by not challenging the history of these monuments, the memory of fascism has been smoothly integrated into the Italian present. They're now seen as part of the Italian heritage. There's the ancient Roman monuments, there are the Renaissance monuments, there are the Baroque palaces, and then we have the heritage of fascism. One reason why post-fascist Italy did not remove the traces of the dictatorship might be there were simply too many buildings and the country too poor to rebuild them. In 2017, American historian Ruth Ben-Ghiat wrote a piece for The New Yorker magazine asking why are there so many fascist monuments still standing in Italy. She received sacks of hate mail from Italians accusing her of ignorance, unable to appreciate what they claimed was the aesthetic value of fascist architecture. Many Italians feel disconnected to fascism, says Ben-Ghiat, and the allies, the United States and Britain mainly, are the reason. They were very worried about social unrest if they pursued very harsh amnesties or purges. Bengyat says the Allies sometimes covered up fascist paintings with cloth rather than destroy them. Many Italians had joined the anti-fascist resistance during the war, and the post-war Communist Party was one of the strongest in Europe. It was the Cold War, and they decided to treat Italy as 
Italians as a good people who were led astray by a bad man. But Ben Getz's article also inspired historian Lucia Ceci and her fellow researchers to pursue the project of mapping fascist monuments. When the website went public in November, it had identified 1,400 of them. Ceci believes that's about one-half the monuments existing throughout the country. In fact, visitors to the website are asked to suggest additional listings. Silvia Podroli, NPR News, Rome. Bellflower, Missouri. Ready for your close-up? This week, the Pentagon released what amounted to a selfie of the pilot of a U-2 spy plane, keeping an eye on the balloon the U.S. says was a Chinese spy craft. But other than 70,000 feet in the air, where was the photo snapped? NPR senior editor and correspondent Jeff Brumfield went over the photos. Google Maps and Pentagon reports he identified the Mississippi River, then a Y-shaped channel leading into the river next to a dam he could determine was Lock 24, then a bend in U.S. Highway 61, a water reservoir, and finally the roof of an agricultural supply business just outside of town. A town Jeff Brumfield determined was Bellflower, population 325, and around since 1887, even before B.J. Lederman began to write our theme music. In a post on NPR.org, Jeff says we still don't know what the balloon was doing in American skies until we do. I would like to ask, hey, Jeff Brumfield, can you help me find my keys? Check your phone. Your driver is two minutes away. Ah, wait. Priya Gunn's novel, Your Driver is Waiting, tells the story of a driver named Domini, who is Tamil, queer, straining to make ends meet, driving for a living, but she hopes not a life in an unnamed North American city that roils with protests, squash dreams, and part-time gigs. And then Domini runs into someone special who upends her life, not in a good way. Priya Guns joins us now from Amman, Jordan. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Your voice is super buttery. I feel like I need to up my sultry right now. Nobody has ever said that to me, <laughs> and I include my wife. Thank you very, very much. Um, you acknowledge that seeing uh, Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver sets you to thinking, right? Um, it's not like Taxi Driver, but I definitely took a lot of inspiration from the film. For me, my interest was in unpacking and unpicking everything about Travis Bickle. I really like to think about how we can reimagine who Travis Bickle would be today. And that's kind of was my starting point. Mm. Let me get you to read a section, please, that helps us set up what Domini, forgive me for putting it this way, drives through every day in life. Absolutely. Rent was due 45 days before yesterday. The electric was about to get cut off again, and I needed as many pings as I could get. Five stars, please. Tips and cash, if possible. As I maneuvered on four wheels through the city without being the change I wanted to see in the world, past protest after protest, Jesus had two dads. The police enforced white supremacy. I'd rather be in bed. Arson or climate disaster? Okay, KK, boomer. Then alongside, reclaim the night for the thousandth time. Passed a march for taxing the rich where there were also signs for decriminalizing sex work. I felt myself becoming smaller so much so that I wondered how my feet still reached the pedals. How much time have you spent in rideshare cars and <laughs> driving or, or being a passenger? 
before writing this novel, I probably took three ride share drives. Mm-hmm. I've only downloaded the app about a couple months ago. Um, but I mean, in terms of taking taxis, I mean, I've always taken taxis. I don't really drive. I, I started taking lessons uh, while I was writing the book so I could understand what it feels like to drive stick and to actually drive on the road. I, I don't I don't have a driver's license. I feel like the smartest people I know don't have driver's license. Oh, God bless you for saying that. <laughs> it's true. In a distinctive way, driving a ride share and having to deal with passengers is a, is a way of getting kind of a full serving of life experience, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. There's no escaping. You are inviting people into your personal space, people that you normally wouldn't even talk to. And then you're responsible for getting them to where they need to be on time and safe. Um, and they come in and they treat you like doo-doo. I was told I, I, I shouldn't swear, so I'm trying really hard. You can say doo-doo on this show. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> I thought so. Tell us what happens when she runs into Jolene. And I, you know, I use that phrase in all ways. <laughs> I think this is a moment for Domini in so many different ways. Domini sees Jolene and just through her appearance and through her mannerisms, she knows this. She knows that this person is very different. They are not the same. And I think sometimes there's an air. I mean, we all have something about us that tells us so much about ourselves that maybe we don't even realize. Um, But Jolene definitely is kind of Domini's way to escape from her reality. Well, let's explain Jolene uh, a little, if mm. if we could, because they they have what sound like very similar principles about the world, don't they? It seems like that would be the case, though Domini is reluctant to connect in the beginning. But I mean, bless her, she thinks you know what, and her friends help her. It's it's not about Jolene being white, and that was made mm-hmm. very clear by her friends. Like that that's not the case. It's more about I guess her class, her position. What was really important to me in writing Jolene was that I wasn't creating this caricature of say a white liberal wealthy woman. And writing her was interesting for me also because I was drawing on my own experiences where I had a Jolene tendency. And I think for me, what's important is that readers read my novel and they don't just you know, shun Jolene to a corner and think, oh my God, what a terrible person. But I hope that she acts as a mirror in many ways where you stop to think, oh, doo-doo. I've been like that before. Like, I've done something like that. And that's okay. Sometimes, and and you're a terrific writer, Mm -hmm. but sometimes the characterization of Jolene made me squirm a little bit. Mm -hmm. I, I wrote down a phrase, her blue eyes glistened, leading me to believe she had never cried a tear in her life. Well, obviously, that's not true of anyone. Mm-mm. Is your narrative voice inferring that because Jolene is white blonde and what so much of the world considers beautiful, she could never have cried a tear. She could never have had a problem. She could never know the meaning of loss. I mean, okay, so speaking for myself here as a brown, dark-skinned woman living in the society in which we live in, like there has been so much that we've been told about ourselves. And I'm not here to talk about like, representation and identity politics or whatnot, but things do have an impact on certain communities. And so I think the line that you mentioned or you quoted is was Domini's kind of unraveling of the things that she's been taught and told. 
and trying to mm -hmm. understand this person who she's now connecting with. I have seen you have said in interviews you wanted to write this book for people with short attention spans. Yeah. How was that done? Because it strikes me that it takes discipline and a long attention span to write a novel, even in short spurts, doesn't it? One of my many heroes is Asa Manandan. He was a Tamil British activist and writer. And he said, we write for the people we're fighting for. So I think what is important, and even thinking about his work in terms of accessibility, whatever we, we work on, what we're writing, it should be accessible to the people who, you know, the work reflects. So I've joked when I said I, I'm writing for people with short attention spans. That is true. But ultimately, I really want to write work that brings a different audience to literature and fiction. Because I'm thinking about my sister, the people I grew up with, the people from my block, you know, who don't have the time necessarily to read because they're mm -hmm. working. Do you worry with so many people struggling between two and three jobs in a, in a gig economy that the experience of reading is just something we don't have time for, we don't have space for, we don't have the energy for? Mm. I, I definitely do think that's the case. And I think, I mean, even in terms of like watching a movie or a TV series, especially when it deals with a subject that you can really connect with in regards to race and class and those experiences, sometimes it can feel really heavy. Like there's so many shows I'm like, oh yes, that's, that's totally up my alley, but I'm tired. You know, I'm not yeah. even working two jobs anymore, but I'm tired and I'm tired because I am a person who has to deal with certain things because I am who I am. So again, as a writer, for me, I'm also very interested in how we can deal with these sorts of themes and make it light and make it entertaining. Priya Guns, her new novel, Your Driver is Waiting. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staplesconnect.com. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at wtgrantfoundation.org. Thanks for starting your weekend with 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about 20 minutes, the Chicago mayor's race. Join NPR's All Things Considered host, Ari Shapiro, on Sunday, March 26th at City Space. You'll get a conversation about his new memoir and tales from his broadcast career. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It's 14 degrees in Boston. Highs today in the low 20s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we put the important question to Stephen Colbert. Is it weird to have all that awkward sex on camera with Adam Driver? <laughs> it's not weird. <laughs> 
I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for an all-star wait wait this week with Steven, Michaela Schifrin, Rob Reiner, basically everybody but Adam Driver. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, President Zelensky at a press conference yesterday on the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion and Ukraine's resistance. If we'll fulfill our tasks, then we'll definitely have this victory. I'm confident that we'll have this victory. This hour, Greg Myrie on how the war might change this second year. Later, a new book on the blood plasma donation clinics open 24-7 in struggling cities across the country. An Iranian director who manages to make movies under house arrest and a teacher remembers a former student who lost his life this week. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, February 25, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The meeting of G20 finance ministers gathering in India has ended without consensus on the Ukraine war. The participants were at odds over language condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia and China objected to the language. European Union countries have now finalized a tenth round of sanctions against Russia. The latest Biden administration sanctions include a Treasury Department list that targets hundreds of Russians, among them four governors who are coordinating efforts to transfer Ukrainian children to Russia. President Biden has no plans to visit East Palestine, Ohio, which was the site of the Norfolk Southern train derailment and toxic chemical release earlier this month. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, the derailment has become a political flashpoint. When President Biden was in Ukraine, Republicans back in the U.S. criticized him for going to Kiev before visiting the Ohio community. Then former President Trump showed up with water branded with his name. Biden counters that the administration, in fact, had people on the ground within two hours. And so the idea that we're not engaged is just simply not, not there. Now back from Kyiv, Biden has been briefed by top administration officials about the aftermath of the derailment, including by the heads of the EPA and FEMA and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, just back from a visit to East Palestine. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Traders just wrapped up the toughest week of the year yet on Wall Street. And now investors are adjusting expectations for what the next stage of the Federal Reserve's fight against high inflation will look like. NPR's David Gura reports. It was a volatile trading week shortened because of the President's Day holiday that started with the Dow dropping on Tuesday by almost 700 points. Wall Street's hopes have faded that the Federal Reserve will feel comfortable enough with the progress it's made to pause interest rate hikes. On Wednesday, minutes from the Fed's most recent meeting indicated some policymakers would have backed a larger hike than the quarter point increase the central bank approved. Inflation is still stubborn. According to the latest data from the Commerce Department, prices rose faster than Wall Street expected in January. David Gura, NPR News, New York. 
First Lady Joe Biden, on a five-day tour of Africa, was warmly received at a meeting with women in Nairobi today. Dr. Biden met with women who are small business owners and pulled their resources to help struggling families in Kenya. I've always taught my own daughter and my granddaughter the importance of being financially independent. And so now here uh, you've found a way to do your own banking system. She opened her trip earlier this week in Namibia where she spoke to more than a thousand students. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Newly released information from the MBTA on its slow zones shows that the T has 70 slow zones across the system, covering nearly nine miles of track. The T released this data publicly for the first time yesterday. In slow zones, trains and trolleys must reduce their speed, often because of track issues. The orange line has the largest portion of its track restricted, at more than 13%. Boston's Public Health Commission is increasing its alerts about fentanyl, the deadly opioid showing up in cocaine. Eleven people overdosed on cocaine laced with fentanyl from Monday into Tuesday this week. At least one person has died. Boston Medical Center's Stephen Murray says casual cocaine users who have no tolerance for fentanyl are at especially high risk. They may not be engaged with any sort of harm reduction program. They may not know about fentanyl test strips. They may not even be aware that this happens. So can catch people by surprise. Murray says the state could save lives by allowing supervised consumption sites where people could be revived if they accidentally overdose. Air Wellness, a company with several dispensaries in Massachusetts, is helping people with marijuana charges on their records get a fresh start. Last year, Massachusetts passed a law making it easier for residents to expunge these charges from their records. Air's corporate social responsibility head, Carrie Edwards, came up with the idea for free expungement clinics, and the company holds a clinic today at Connection United Methodist Church in Somerville. We call our expungement event um, Changing Legacies with the fact of bringing these folks back into a place where they're no longer seen as criminal, able to expunge their records and have them become parts of society again. Edward says Air already has helped wipe marijuana charges from the records of 36 people in Massachusetts. In sports tonight, the Celtics play the 76ers in Philadelphia. The Bruins are in Vancouver against the Canucks. And the Revs open their season in Charlotte. It's 15 degrees in Boston. Increasing clouds today, a slight chance of some snow this afternoon, and highs in the low 20s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by HBO Max. The HBO original drama series Perry Mason, starring Matthew Reese, returns for a new season, Monday, March 6th at 9 p.m. on HBO Max. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. 93 million Nigerians are registered to vote in the presidential election there today. Economy and security seem to be the top concerns. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwoto was at a polling station in Lagos earlier this morning, and we asked him what's at stake in these elections. For many people, it's the chance to change course in this country because the last eight years have frankly been extremely bleak for millions of people. On the economy, on insecurity, so much has felt like it's been lost. We've had two recessions in the last eight years. The value of the Naira, the currency here, is more than halved. Um, We have had millions of job losses. Youth unemployment is high. 
inflation is high. And then on insecurity, it's been extremely difficult. You know, we're used to hearing about Boko Haram, Islamist insurgency, predominantly in northeast Nigeria. The government did a lot actually to set them back from being an occupying force. But insecurities proliferated beyond kind of regional pockets to across the country. Today, we hear of kidnapped for ransoms every day. And so many people feel that Nigeria is at somewhat of a crossroads. Emmanuel, who are the front runners and, and what issues seem to dominate? So this is where it gets really interesting. You know, we're used to having two standout candidates from a wide pack of candidates. This time, we have three strong candidates, all with a realistic chance of winning. First, we have Bola Ahmed Tinubu, who is a 70-year-old leader from the All Progressive Congress Party. That's the ruling party. And he's really a divisive figure. You know, he is someone who has been seen as a power broker in the country. He's a two-term governor of Lagos. Now he feels like it's his turn to be in power. Then we have Atiku Abubakar. He's 76, a former vice president from the People's Democratic Party. And then we have Peter Obi. He's 61 and is someone who has blown onto the political scene. He's a member of the establishment, but he's a paradoxical figure because he, even though he comes from the political class, he's tapped into this sense that a different kind of political leadership is possible. And the sense that, you know, change is profoundly needed. I spoke to Fadekemi Abiru. She works for Steers in Lagos, and they recently published a poll, one of many polls projecting Obi to win if the turnout is high. Nigeria's economic growth over the past two years has been sluggish. We've had two recessions. Inflation is at the highest that it's been. And so as a result of that, you have a situation where people are looking for a viable opposition that they can turn to because they believe that that's something that will change their fortunes. Emmanuel, you've covered Nigerian elections before. Um, what makes this potentially so significant? Every election is vital, you know, and so in a lot of senses, this election isn't really that different. But in another sense, it feels like a tipping point. You know, speaking to people who come to vote today, many of them feel this is a particularly urgent election and that things could get worse if things don't change. You know, recently I spoke to Emmanuel Admokanos. He's an elderly businessman and he was campaigning recently in Lagos. I'm an old man, I'm running to 70 years. One of my daughter is in the US, the other one in the UK, the other one is about going to Canada. So they're all running away, that is why I'm here, so that none of them will run away again. So that the country will be better off for us to move to the next level. So this is what's pressing on people's minds today as they go out to vote in this election. And Pierre's Emmanuel Akinwoto at a polling station in Lagos. Thanks so much for being with us. Take care. Thanks, Scott. And after we spoke, Emmanuel tweeted that he had to run from gunshots at the polling station where he was. We, uh, of course, will continue to follow the story. In Ukraine, several surprises have defined the fighting against Russia this past year. Ukraine has underachieved. Sorry. Russia has underachieved. Ukraine has overachieved. Western support for Ukraine has remained strong. But as the war enters a second year, NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie asks, will it continue on the same course? Just because certain trends have shaped the war so far, there's no guarantee the conflict will remain on the same trajectory. Military analyst Michael Kaufman says the Russian and Ukrainian militaries have both changed markedly after a year of heavy fighting. Neither of these armies look today the way they did at the beginning of the war. Both have taken heavy losses. Both have had lost a lot of their best people and best equipment. When Russia attempted a rapid takeover a year ago, 
the military rumbled into Ukraine with huge stockpiles of military hardware. But analyst Dmitry Alperovitch says the Russians didn't send enough troops to capture and hold large parts of Ukraine. So if at the beginning they didn't have enough troops, but they had plenty of equipment, now it's sort of the reverse where they're flowing more troops in, but they may no longer have enough equipment to actually execute a successful campaign. Russia faces military shortages for a couple reasons. First, it burned through massive amounts of ammunition at an unsustainable rate. Second, Russia lost half its tanks in the past year, according to a recent Pentagon estimate. Kaufman, who's at the Center for Naval Analyses, doesn't think the Russian military has gotten better. Yet because it retreated from a good deal of territory last fall, this means... The Russian military substantially reduced the amount of territory they have to defend. That means that as a military, they have far more force density. They have echelon lines, they have reserves. So Russia may be relatively well positioned to defend its current strongholds in the eastern region of Donbass and the southern peninsula of Crimea. This brings us to the second key trend, Ukraine's successful offensive in the fall and whether that can be repeated in the spring. In the coming months, Ukraine will likely find it harder to locate and exploit Russian vulnerabilities. Again, Dmitry Alperovitch, who heads the think tank Silverado Policy Accelerator. I think it's going to be very difficult for the Ukrainians to make quick progress unless the Russian line just collapses. I think it's going to be difficult to see the type of lightning offensives that we saw last year. If both sides have trouble carrying out large-scale offensives, this means the coming year could become a grinding stalemate. Neither side, frankly, has demonstrated a great proficiency at combined arms. Neither side has air superiority, which is really important if you're going to take these fortified positions. Both sides are expected to launch offensives. In fact, a Russian one appears to be underway in the east, and Russian forces already suffered one resounding defeat. Now, if neither side makes big advances, this could take us to the third key trend, the durability of Western support for Ukraine. It's been much stronger than many anticipated. Just last month, Western countries pledged the biggest military assistance package yet, including, for the first time, tanks. But this backing may not last forever, says Russia expert Julia Yaffe, who writes for Puck News. I do think at some point Western support will start fraying, especially as the political winds change in the U.S. She points to a group of Republicans in the House who are questioning U.S. aid. You are seeing these reassertions of isolationist kind of America first sentiment of why are we in this fight? Why are we sending a quote-unquote blank check to Ukraine? We shouldn't be doing this. And, says Dmitry Alperovitch, stockpiles of Western weapons are not infinite. The main issue is not actually the will to support the Ukrainians from the Western side. It's the capacity to do so. The rate at which the Ukrainians are expending munitions exceeds the production capacity of even the collective West. Heading into the next year of the war, Michael Kaufman urges everyone to show a little humility. You have to be humble specifically in the area of predictions because experts are actually usually bad at predictions. In an unpredictable war, he says, expect the unexpected. Greg Myrie, NPR News.
Time now for StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative that records and shares the stories of service members and their families. A note now, this piece contains offensive racist language. When Nazim Abdul Karim was 18 years old, he was drafted into World War II. It was 1942. Many black men were being called up to serve in segregated units. Abdul Karim spent four years overseas. He survived the battle at Normandy. At the age of 96, he came to StoryCorps to reflect on his time in the service and what he found when he came home after the war. I was in an amphibious outfit. We drove out in the Atlantic Ocean picking up dead soldiers, pulling them in and bringing them back to shore. You would have to uh, build up a resistance that you would do your job regardless to feelings. And you thought about it later. And sometimes I think about it now. Well, when I was discharged, January 31st, 1946, the MP came to me and asked me for my discharge. I told him it was in the bottom of my duffel bag. And he said, the war is over. Get in your place. I can't describe it. All that time, sleeping in the rain, snow, and sleet on the ground all up through Europe to come back here with the same old attitude. If I knew then, like I know now, I would not have gone. I would have gone to jail. I learned that I was more than what I thought I was, what I was told that I was. And I learned how to love myself. Sheikh Nazim Abdul Karim died. In the year after this recording, he was 97 years old. His final resting place is the Quantico National Cemetery in Virginia. This interview is archived at the U.S. Library of Congress. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918, and coming up in about 10 minutes... California government agencies have found a way around the state's strict regulations about dumping hazardous waste. They're sending it across state lines. That and much more is still to come on Weekend Edition Saturday. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall, babson.edu MBA. It's 15 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of snow this afternoon, highs in the low 20s. This is WBUR. 
I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. The meeting of G20 finance ministers in India has ended without consensus on the Ukraine war. The participants were at odds over language condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia and China objected to the language. Despite GOP criticism, President Biden has no plans to visit East Palestine, Ohio personally, noting that the administration had people on the ground two hours after the Norfolk Southern train derailment earlier this month. In Nevada, the Lyon County Sheriff's Office says a care flight medical aircraft went down in a non-residential area last night. Media reports say all five people on board died. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Ground one of Chicago's mayoral election on Tuesday. Mayor Lori Lightfoot is the first openly gay person and first black woman to lead the city, and she now faces a tough re-election battle. Mariah Wolfel of member station WBEZ reports. Lightfoot won by a landslide in 2019 by running as a reformer who would put an end to political corruption and unite the city. Now Lightfoot is telling voters she needs four more years. She says she's faced unprecedented challenges and joked she'd give this note of caution to her 2019 self. Beware of a global pandemic. Lightfoot's term has been defined in part by pandemic-era battles. Fights with the teachers' union over when to bring kids back to school after the height of the pandemic led to work stoppages. She fought with police when she mandated they get a COVID-19 vaccine to stay on the job. Those disputes and more have inspired eight challengers, some pushing themes of unity, including a Democratic U.S. congressman from Illinois, Jesus Chewy Garcia. Chicago needs a mayor who will bring together and unite instead of driving us apart. But Lightfoot's opponents have hit her most on a spike in crime, an issue cities across the country have grappled with amid the pandemic. In Chicago, gun violence is a long-standing issue, affecting mostly black and brown communities. But it has taken a front seat this year as crime has seeped into wealthy areas. I think the top issues obviously are public safety, public safety, public safety. That's one of Lightfoot's leading challengers to her right, Paul Vallis, who led the city's public school system in the 90s. He has built a tough-on-crime campaign and is endorsed by the city's largest police union. Racial politics have also been on full display in this election. Vallis is the only white person in the running among one Latino and seven black candidates. Veteran political consultant Delmarie Cobb says in a city that's a third black, a third white, and a third Latino, it's a factor that can't be ignored. The racial part of this is that whites will galvanize around Paul Vallis. And we've already seen that the wealthy Republican establishment is pouring money into his campaign right and left. 
Lightfoot faced backlash recently after warning black residents against splitting the vote, saying a ballot for anyone but her is like giving your vote to Vallis. But there are serious black challengers to her left to choose from, who say Lightfoot has reneged on progressive promises. A local county commissioner, Brandon Johnson, is chief among them. We have built a multicultural, multi-generational movement. Black, brown, white, Asian. There's a couple of rich people that even want to see me elected. We're not going to allow people, including this administration, to provoke fear and anxiety. The tough re-election campaign is no surprise to anyone, Lightfoot included. She frequently touts that she's one of few incumbent big city mayors deciding to ask for another term after the pandemic. And upon announcing her re-election, she told a room of supporters on Chicago's South Side she anticipated the challenging campaign. I'm a black woman in America. People are betting against us every single day. But that doesn't mean we're not ready for the fight. If re-elected, Lightfoot would be the first woman mayor in Chicago history to get a second term. Election day is Tuesday, with a likely runoff for the top two vote-getters in April. For NPR News, I'm Mariah Wolfel in Chicago. The U.S. economy gets about as much money from selling blood products overseas as it does from soybeans. More than $24 billion in 2021. Much of the plasma used around the world comes out of the veins of Americans who sell it because they need money. Kathleen McLaughlin has written a kind of reporting odyssey that begins with her own personal experience of smuggling plasma into China, where she lived and reported for years. Her book, Blood Money. Kathleen McLaughlin, a former night science journalism fellow at MIT, whose reporting's been in The Economist, The Atlantic on public radio and more, joins us from Butte, Montana. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. I'm delighted to be here. And let us please begin with your personal story. The arrivals hall in Shanghai. Yes. Why were you smuggling human blood products into China? <laughs> it all sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? About 20 years ago, I was diagnosed with a chronic illness that requires me to have periodic infusions of a medication that's made from other people's plasma. I had moved to China to work as a journalist. I very quickly learned when I knew that I was going to China that China had serious problems with its own blood supply. I knew I needed to bring my own safe blood products. And that was the only way to do it was to stuff these bottles of medicine into my suitcase and lie on the customs form and essentially smuggle these products into China. As you note, uh, China had learned in the hardest possible way about literally blood money in the Hunan province. Right. Hunan province decided to create something called the plasma economy. Poor farmers who never really had a chance to make a lot of extra money could sell their plasma to government-run clinics and some private clinics, and it would create a wealth that the province hadn't seen before. But the problem started when HIV snuck into the system, and at that time, the plasma economy was running so fast and so unsupervised that the virus spread like wildfire. We should explain, unlike, say, what was happening in China, blood plasma in the U.S. is sterilized and screened, isn't it? That's correct. Given, you know, several years of reporting in the U.S. on this and having seen the inside of some of these facilities, I have very little concern or worry that something like what happened in China could happen here. Tell us about Randy, not his real name. Not what we'd call destitute, but hard stretch to pay his bills, right? Yeah, and this is something I found really in, I would say, every place I visited in the U.S. I had expected 
to find the poorest of the poor selling plasma. And that's just for the most part, not the case. You know, the poorest of the poor are screened out by rules like you have to have a permanent residence. You have to have the basic trappings of not being extremely poor. So people like Randy are doing it to supplement their income because wages have not kept pace with the cost of living in so many different places. How much can people like Randy make by selling blood plasma? It completely depends where you are. So it varies and it also varies by how often you go. I would say a rough average, you could probably make somewhere around $40 per time. If you go more often, you get paid more. So the system is gamified, meaning that you get all sorts of incentives throughout the month. The goal of the center is to get you in twice a week, every week until you can't do it anymore. If you want to donate plasma just purely altruistically and not get paid, you can go to the Red Cross. The Red Cross limits the number of times you can donate plasma to once every 28 days, and that works out to 13 times a year. If you go to a for-profit plasma center where you do get paid, you can go 104 times a year. What do we know about possible long-term health consequences? The good news for plasma donors is that I haven't found any scientific indication that this is really bad for you long-term. The negative health consequences seem to go away when you stop doing it. So I've spoken with a lot of people who feel greatly fatigued, nauseous. I've heard from people who've passed out after donating plasma. And then there's just kind of long-term donors will describe this like malaise. You know, you just feel tired. You don't have a lot of energy. The plasma industry will tell you that this is perfectly safe and there's nothing wrong with it. I don't think, to be honest with you, that there's been enough study of what it does to people. I've talked to some doctors about this over the years, because the U.S., as you noted, is one of just a handful of industrialized countries that permits the commercial sale of blood. And doctors have said to me that there are so many procedures in which plasma can be useful, they just can't rely on the generosity of donations. Now, you depend on, on blood plasma, too. Should it be prohibited? I don't believe that at all. No, I actually think that the issue here is we're not paying people enough. I don't personally have a moral problem with paying people for plasma because I think that's true. We need a lot of it for medications and other uses. My issue, I guess, is that I don't think we have sat back as a country and said, is this who we want to be? Do we want to be the kind of place where people are expected to sell pieces of themselves to get by? I don't think that most people know this goes on to such an extent that there are probably millions of Americans who have sold their plasma. And I think that we should at least acknowledge it and have a conversation about what we think is ethical and moral and fair. Kathleen McLaughlin, her book, Blood Money. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. California has some of the toughest environmental regulations in the country, but an investigation by NPR and the nonprofit news outlet CalMatters found the state routinely evades its own laws by exporting hazardous waste. Robert Lewis has the story. Drive five hours east of Los Angeles and you leave the Golden State. This is the opening arms of Arizona. Where California sends its toxic waste. This is where it's at. 
David Harper is a member of the Colorado River Indian Tribes, whose reservation is nearby. He's standing outside the La Paz County landfill, where in the past five years, California hauled more than 160,000 tons of soil that the state labeled hazardous waste. This is soil workers in California dug up at old industrial or military sites because it was contaminated with things like lead and DDT. And where is your reservation from here? It is east from here, approximately five to 10 miles from this area. California law says this waste is so toxic, if dumped in-state, it needs to go to hazardous waste disposal facilities with extra liners and other safeguards. But California's regulations stop at the border. So for decades, the people overseeing cleanup sites have simply taken the toxic soil to states with weaker environmental laws and dumped it at regular landfills, which is cheaper. David Harper doesn't think they should be able to get away with that. Why didn't California keep it themselves? What did we do to create this issue to where you have to bring your toxins to our traditional homeland? Why is that fair? Quite frankly, it's beyond our authority to tell them how to manage that waste. Meredith Williams is director of California's Department of Toxic Substances Control. She says her agency can't really stop private businesses from trucking waste out of state. But Williams' own department is one of the biggest out-of-state dumpers. The agency routinely takes contaminated soil and trucks it to Arizona. And records show lots of other California government agencies are doing the same. I can't make a blanket statement about the safety or that because everything's so situational. I asked Williams if she thinks it's safe to take waste her state considers hazardous and dump it at regular landfills. What is the hazard level? Why is it classified as hazardous waste? And how well is that out-of-state landfill managed? And it's a lot of waste. Shipping records show California cleanup sites took more than 660,000 tons of toxic soil to Arizona landfills in the past five years, and about a million tons to Utah. There's currently a Utah landfill trying to get a permit to dispose of California's contaminated soil right on the banks of the Great Salt Lake. Again, California regulator Meredith Williams. We have our hands full enough. We're not in a position to go out of state and assess an out-of-state landfill. Regulators in Arizona and Utah declined interview requests, but did answer written questions. They say their states don't consider the contaminated soil to be hazardous, and they do inspect the landfills where it's going. Arizona regulators a couple years ago actually labeled one landfill an imminent threat because of groundwater concerns, though the problems there were ultimately fixed. What you put in the landfill isn't the question. The question is what might come out. Engineering professor Morton Barlaz at North Carolina State University says modern landfills are well-designed. The concept of yeah, we're going to put a highly contaminated soil in a landfill and whatever's in it's going to reach out to groundwater. That's just not what happens. But that's little comfort to David Harper, who takes me on a tour of his reservation. He's pointing out mountains, each a part of the Mojave creation story. One is called Old Woman. The creator made her forever overseer of our land. And these areas are sacred, but to anybody else, it's just a rock. It's just a road. It's just just a dump. It's just a dump. But it's also his homeland. For NPR News, I'm Robert Lewis. That story comes to us from NPR's California Newsroom and Cal Matters.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Democrats across the country have been pushing for expanded voting rights at both the state and federal level. Minnesota, one such bill is about to become law. Brian Baxter of member station NPR News reports the measure would give the right to vote to thousands of people who have served time in prison. Even with a major snowstorm bearing down, a large contingent showed up at the state capitol to urge passage of a law giving Minnesota felons a right to vote after leaving custody. Since the 1960s, parole and probation have disqualified thousands of people. 55,000 people! 55,000 people! Non-incarcerated felons locked out of voting in Minnesota tried to regain access in the courts, but failed. A legislative push 20 years in the making ultimately succeeded, propelled forward in a state house now fully in Democratic control. Lawmakers sent the felon voting bill to Governor Tim Walz, who plans to sign it next week. We should not continue to perpetually punish individuals. Senate President Bobby Joe Champion represents a diverse Minneapolis district and helped lead the drive. He says denying voter eligibility shoves felons trying to rebuild their lives to the side and does little to further public safety. We know that when people do structured and pro-social things, that good things happen. And why should we deny someone the right to vote? We want them to be connected to the community and a part of the fabric of our community. But most Republicans say with crime a concern, it's the wrong time to reduce consequences. And they sought to keep restrictions for people convicted of election fraud, sex crimes, and murder. Senator Andrew Matthews says there needs to be distinctions, like in Delaware and Florida. People that commit the crime of murder or manslaughter, they have permanently taken away their victim's right to vote. Minnesota will join 21 states in automatically granting voting rights after incarceration ends. Community organizer Janae Bates, who led those chants in the Capitol hallways, says it's personal. Her husband is currently serving time, and she predicts the Minnesota law will invite people back to the polls beyond those made newly eligible because there's a lot of folks who actually can vote. They're off of probation, off of papers, and they don't realize that they have the right to vote. Democratic Secretary of State Steve Simon says his team is ready to do its part. This is a really big law change, so we're going to be there with our nonpartisan voter outreach folks, making sure everyone gets word. Other proposals before Minnesota's legislature go hand in hand. Lawmakers could soon make voter registration automatic upon issuance of a driver's license, or application for government programs. Advocates say that step will take one more hurdle out of the way for people who haven't had the chance to vote due to their past. For NPR News, I'm Brian Baxt in St. Paul, Minnesota. An evolving story about the New York Times has been making news these days. The paper's coverage of trans people and gender-affirming health care has sparked criticism from outside and inside its newsroom. Later today on All Things Considered, NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik joins host Michelle Martin for conversation about the issues the controversy is raising, including what's journalism and what's advocacy. You can tune in by streaming NPR on your smartphone or computer, or just listen to us on the radio.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Massachusetts Department of Education is criticizing the Boston Public School District's transportation service for students with disabilities. Specifically, the state says the unreliability of the service violates the students' rights. The Boston Globe obtained a letter sent by the department to the Boston School Superintendent, and the letter says... In the year from October 2021 to October 2022, bus dysfunction denied students the right to safe and timely rides and led students to miss some necessary specialized services. The department ordered Boston to submit a plan to address the issues and to hire a person to manage special education transportation. The MBTA is still short-staffed on subway dispatchers, and the agency has no estimate for when it will end reduced service levels on the red, orange, and blue lines. The T started running fewer trips last June when only 16 dispatchers were employed. The T's acting deputy chief operating officer says the agency now has 21 dispatchers, and that is three short of what the T considers the essential minimum. It is 15 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some snow this afternoon, highs in the low 20s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rose Art Museum, with Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love, an exploration of identity and legacy. Tickets at brandeis.edu rose. Millions of Nigerians head to the polls Saturday with an outsider candidate blowing up the race and many people saying they are ready for a change. Nigeria is really resourceful, but it's like we're held down. Leadership has been a problem and the tone from the top has influenced the entire country. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from American Cruise Lines, cruising the Maine coast where travelers can experience a lobster bake and explore New England's maritime heritage. Learn more at americancruiselines.com NPR and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. And now it's time for sports. An Alabama college basketball star takes the court in the midst of a legal controversy. U.S. women's soccer team still rules and a Mississippi State pitcher who can with him with either arm, NPR's Tom Goldman joins us. Hi there, Tom. Hi, Scott. Let's begin with this important uh, controversy in college basketball. Earlier this year, Darius Miles, a University of Alabama player, was charged with capital murder, the death of a 23-year-old woman in Tuscaloosa. And in a preliminary hearing, a police investigator testified two other players, Jaden Bradley and Brandon Miller, were also at the scene that night. Where do things stand now? Well, the part of that police testimony this week that's turned this case into a national debate is that Brandon Miller wasn't just there, but he delivered the gun that killed Jamea Harris, uh, mother of a five-year-old boy. Miller is a 20-year-old freshman star, a big reason why Alabama is currently ranked number two in the nation. He is projected to be a key player in next month's March Madness tournament and then a top NBA draft pick. 
But now he's connected to a murder, and uh, he's been playing ever since the crime happened in January and even after the revelations of this week. And why are they suited up and playing? I mean, recognizing that everyone's entitled to a fair trial. Why? Yeah, yeah, well, neither has been charged with anything by police. And Miller's lawyer says Miller never touched the gun, which belonged to that former teammate you mentioned, Darius Miles. It was in Miller's car, and he was, <clears throat> excuse me, driving to pick up Miles when Miles texted, bring the gun. The lawyer says Miller didn't know the gun was going to be used for anything illegal. Uh, Alabama head coach Nate Oates, who's been criticized for his comments about the case, says They've done the right thing, allowing Miller to play. But, you know, Scott, there's a lot of anger about it. At the game he played this week against South Carolina, some fans chanted, lock him up. Mm -hmm. uh, Jamia Harris's mother said it was unimaginable that he played. And critics of the university and the basketball team say it's another case of a star athlete being protected, especially in this case with Alabama a strong contender for a first-ever men's basketball title. Yeah. Moving on more happily, the Women's World Cup of <clears throat> Soccer this summer, uh, America's team uh, seems a team of destiny again, right? Uh, well, perhaps, but perhaps not. Uh, you know, Scott, it's a team in transition. With Excuse a lot me. Of young I thought you prompted me to ask that question. Go ahead. <laughs> It's a team in transition, a lot of young players. There are still stars like Megan Rapino and Alex Morgan, but the big name this week was 24-year-old forward Mallory Swanson, known formally to soccer fans as Mallory Pugh, her maiden name. She led the U.S. team to its fourth straight title in the She Believes Cup. It's a nice honor, but the team was using it mainly as prep for a World Cup that's going to start in July that's expected to be very competitive as the world has been catching up to the great U.S. women's teams. I can't wait to see a college pitcher, Mississippi State. <clears throat> I'm going to leave you to tell us his name. He throws from both uh, both sides of the mound, right? It's, it's, it's crazy. Freshman Gerangelo Sainsha is a rare switch pitcher, and he's really good at it. In his college debut this week, he pitched four innings, didn't allow a run, gave up just one hit and struck out seven. Six as a right-hander, one as a lefty, topping 90 miles an hour with both arms. Now, he has to stick with one arm for each at bat. But it's quite a sight. He was drafted last year by the Milwaukee Brewers, but for now he's firing his ambidextrous fastballs past college players. Gosh, I've got to see him. NPR's Tom Goldman, thanks so much. You're welcome. The protests and mass arrests in Iran say a lot about the social and political unrest there. But it is the country's artists who give us a glimpse at the daily lives of everyday Iranians, and those artists always pay a price. The filmmaker, Jafar Panahi, recently went on a hunger strike until authorities released him from prison on bail, where he was held on charges of, quote, propagandizing against the government. Mr. Panahi is banned from leaving the country, from making films and giving media interviews. At times he's even prohibited from leaving his house. But he still manages to make movies. For instance, his 2011 movie, this is not a film. It was made while he was under house arrest. His latest, No Bears, looks at love, superstition, and fear, and like all of his films, it layers the personal with the political. In this exchange, his proxy director has crossed the border from Turkey into Iran, telling him that he's worried that Panahi will be recognized and reported to the authorities. <laughs> 
هر لحظه ممکنه یکی ببینه آنتن باشه بره لو بده Joined now by Roxana Hadadi, critic at Vulture. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on. Can you give us some idea of Mr. Panahi's significance as an artist and filmmaker within his country? I think a lot of people see him as embodying the creative spirit in a very unique way. You mentioned that despite being put under house arrest, he has continued to make films. He has continued to make films that are purposefully critiquing the Iranian government and some of the political practices and the suppression, I would say. There is this sort of fuzziness and slipperiness in his movies where you might think you're watching something quote-unquote real. It's not real, but the emotional impact of it is still very legitimate. He's been in trouble uh, with the authorities for years, but, but what led to his most recent arrest? So the most recent arrest came last summer. Uh, he had gone to inquire about what had happened to a couple of other directors. And so when he had been sentenced about 12 years ago, it was sort of the deferred six-year sentence and this period of house arrest. So when he went to inquire what happened to these other directors, they were also sort of making political statements. They decided to reactivate that sentence and imprison him. In No Bears, uh, it's set in an Iranian village near the country's border with Turkey, and he's trying to direct a movie in Turkey by video chat because he's banned from leaving the country. This isn't a documentary, but it does give us an idea of what Iranian artists have to contend with, doesn't it? It does. I think it gives you a sense of all the different ways of navigation and negotiation that are happening. You mentioned that he's basically directing this film over WhatsApp. So there's the very practical issue of how do I find internet connectivity in a country that sometimes shuts down the internet? Uh, and how, you know, how do you create art with collaborators when you're not physically there? So yeah, I think there is sort of this double layer of what are the actual practical difficulties? And then sort of what are the emotional difficulties? How do you control a crew? How do you work with your actors? How do you tell this story from a physical distance? We should note in uh, in 2010, the government imposed a ban on Mr. Panahi to keep him from making films for 20 years. So how does he manage to keep making films time and again? If you've watched any of these films, if you watched This Is Not a Film or if you've watched Taxi, he sort of is just putting himself out there. He has become a character in his own work. In Taxi, he is a taxi driver, <laughs> and the film is his connections uh, with the people that he's driving around. I think there is sort of this, up until this point, there had been a little bit of, okay, you know, we'll sort of let you do what you want, but there's always the threat of something could happen. And I think, unfortunately, in this most recent occurrence, that threat actually came to pass. Let me ask you, there's a moment in his 2015 film, Taxi, when a notable human rights uh, attorney, Nasreen Sutuda, she's a passenger and says, uh, you have been released from prison, but the outside world is only a bigger prison. They make your nearest friends into your worst enemies. Mm -hmm. That's quite a chilling commentary, isn't it? It is. And I think it's something that 
Iranian people in Iran and in the diaspora and people living in any sort of regime that is particularly interested in controlling its people is aware of, right? I mean, they're sort of a state of fear and tension and paranoia that comes with making and watching Panahi's art. And I think there is this sense of who will talk, what will they say, who will be a witness against me? And all of those questions come up in No Bears as well, in a very explicit way, in a film that is sort of about village tradition, but also about a trial-esque encounter with elders and with a system of power that doesn't want to change. And so No Bears is also grappling with this, right, in a way that is both explicitly about what Penahi is going through and about what everyone in the country is going through to a certain degree. His name is known in cinematic circles, but should his name and work be better known in the West? Should people be lining up to see his films or at least available to, to, to download them to stream? I think so. I, I mean, this might be my nationalistic answer, but I think <laughs> that all Iranian cinema is important and worth watching. And I think what Panahi does is so interesting and in that we discussed before and that he's walking this line between feature filmmaking and documentary filmmaking. So I think he's giving a view into the country that is very deliberate in terms of what he's showing with how do men and women interact, how do people from the city and people from the country interact, there's all that stuff. But I also think the films are just beautifully made. They're so engrossing, they're so engaging. There are various moments in No Bears where I just thought to myself, I don't know how he pulled this off from a filmmaking perspective. So I do think there should be more attention. Panahi is up there and I think worth being discovered Roxana Haddadi, critic at Vulture, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Dylan Lyons was in his first year as a reporter at Spectrum News 13 in Orlando, liked and admired by his friends and colleagues. Wednesday, he went out to cover a shooting that had happened earlier that day. He was sitting in a car at the scene with his co-worker, photojournalist Jesse Walden, when witnesses said a man walked up and shot them both. Dylan Lyons died. Police said the gunman later shot and killed a nine-year-old girl. The woman hit earlier in the day also did not survive. Rick Brunson knew and taught Dylan Lyons at the University of Central Florida's Journalism School and joins us now. Mr. Brunson, thanks so much for making time to speak with us. Thank you, Scott. It's good to be with you. Tell us about this young man you knew, Dylan Lyons. Dylan was a bright light. He he had a theater and dramatic arts background in high school. And so he had a habit of bouncing into a room, whether it was a classroom or whether it was my office during office hours. And he lit that room up. He just had an ebullient smile. He was a, a storyteller. He was telling stories even when he wasn't telling stories. That's that's just who he was. I wonder if there's a story, a moment, something that particularly occurs to you today when you think of Dylan Lyons. I just have little reels in my head of him. When he was taking our basic videography class, I would see him out and about on our campus, you know, shooting a story. 
and he would have other students in the class with him. He was even then not just a student, but a mentor and a coach to other students. He wanted to run fast and he wanted to bring other people with him. This must be difficult to talk about with your students. Uh, yeah, they've been coming in here since Wednesday night. Their eyes ringed with tears because none of them were here when Dylan was here because he graduated in spring 2019. But they're all studying to do exactly what Dylan did professionally. So they feel a kinship with him. I love him to pieces for the way they have uh, conducted themselves honorably in sharing Dylan's story this week. It will forever be one of the most significant moments in their lives, won't it? It, it will. They'll never forget this because of what happened to Dylan. You know, the fear of, could this happen to me? I know they're all, this is all living in their heads. And those are the things in the days ahead we're going to have to process with them. Uh, and I think, to be frank, Scott, safety for journalists has to become paramount. You have to think these kids, this generation, are kids who grew up in schools with frequent active shooter drills. I mean, living with gun violence is something that occupies space in their head constantly. So as an industry, as a profession, we have to, to, to have more conversation and have more policy changes that address making these students feel safe. I don't want to lose sight of the fact that two other people, including a nine-year-old girl, were killed in that neighborhood that day, and, and two others, including the photojournalist Jesse Walden, are wounded. How do we make sense or refuse to make sense of that? Well, I think what you just said, Scott, we have to refuse to make sense of it. It's just darkness, man. It, it, it's just like a darkness has covered our land and our country with so much violence. You know, you've heard this a lot. We have more mass shootings now than we have days in the calendar in 2023. It's crazy. It's senseless. But what I fear is that it, it has become so commonplace that we all just become inured to it, that it's just... It's so commonplace that we we learn to live with this. And there should be something with all of us that rages and say, no, we we do not have to live with this as a country, as a culture. It's it's not right. This is not the America that we have to be. Rick Brunson is a senior instructor of journalism at the University of Central Florida and uh, was one of the teachers, Dylan Lyons, who died this week at the age of 24 on duty for News 13 in Orlando. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you for shedding a light on Dylan's life and for having me with you today. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And at 11, listen for Freakonomics. Join us at City Space on Sunday, March 12th, for an afternoon of classical and folk music featuring the Boston-based Rasa String Quartet. For tickets, just go to wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we put the important question to Stephen Colbert. Is it weird to have all that awkward sex on camera with Adam Driver? (laughs) It's not weird. I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for an all-star Wait, Wait this week with Stephen, Michaela Schifrin, Rob Reiner, basically everybody but Adam Driver. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.